0: I have endometriosis, that means my partner has endometriosis, and that means everybody around us, our parents and our families all have endometriosis too. And it's a, it's a heartbreak for everyone, which is what makes endometriosis a social injustice.
1: Hi. Welcome to Love Mia Vita Podcast, the podcast two women for women. I'm Jerry DiPiano, women's healthcare advocate and founder of FemPharma. I'm joined by Dr. Deborah Saltman, physician, researcher, the thinker, and medical director. Thanks, Jerry. I'm really proud to be a part of FemPharma's commitment to keeping women healthy and safe, and this series of podcasts. Together, we're providing solutions for women who care about living their best lives at any age. As trailblazers, we aim to break down the myths and provide the truths about everything women want and care about. Imagine that. We asked women what they want, and we're about to deliver it. By the way, we hope to entertain you, and that's no BS. Over the coming months, We'll be speaking with experts about topics that matter mental and physical well being, and what more could be done. We will push our experts to give you answers that are real. So send us your questions, and here's to loving our lives. Good afternoon, listeners. This is Jerry DiPiano from Femme Pharma on the Love Mia Vita podcast. Today, we are having a conversation with Dr. Sally Serrell. And the subject matter that we're going to be discussing is taking steps to stop, S-T-E-P, the step to stop endometriosis pain. Sally, welcome to the Love Me Vita podcast. We're so excited to have you this afternoon. Uh, Dr. Sarrell is a practicing pelvic physical therapist specializing in endometriosis. Sally received her doctorate of physical therapy from the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. Additionally, she has a master of arts in teaching from the University of Vermont, with a dual focus in sports medicine and nutrition education. She's certified in New Jersey by the National Athletic Trainers Association as a certified athletic trainer and has worked with many professional sports teams and division one universities. Prior to opening her own practice, Dr. Sarrell worked with a variety of populations that range from athletes to children with neurodevelopmental disorders. Wow. What is a CV. <laughs> I, you know, the best
0: part is all that neurodevelopmental stuff taught me how to manage pain.
1: And that is something that's so important as we embark on our conversation about endometriosis. Uh, endometriosis is near and dear to both of our hearts. Um, I have a number of family members uh, who had endometriosis, still have endometriosis and for whom uh, the treatment options have been pretty pathetic and ultimately had life-changing surgeries. I think that one of the things that we ought to share with our listeners is a little bit about endometriosis because it's not a rare disease. Years ago, it was thought to affect very few women, but you and I both know that endometriosis affects a large number of women. In fact, the number that has often been quoted in the medical literature uh, from the standpoint of the number of women that are living with this in the world is 190 million. Just wrap your head around that for a moment. 190 million women. That is not a rare disease. More importantly, there are between 3 and 15% of women in the age group between say 13 and 52 years of age who may have this condition and that's underreported. Why is it underreported? Because the symptoms are so variable, number one. And let's talk about the way in which women are conditioned to accept pain as part of womanhood. But Sally, um, perhaps you would be willing to share a little bit more about endometriosis, the condition, and how it affected you in your life.
0: Well, endometriosis is when tissue similar to, but not the same as the lining of the uterus is found um, elsewhere in the body. It can be found anywhere in the reproductive cavity, but it can be found in the bowels. It can be found um, in the lung. We have cases of it even found in the spleen now. That's brand new research and on the liver and so much all over the body which is why everybody has different symptoms. And my endometriosis, despite being in medicine and having a family that's in medicine and having excellent um, insurance and what I thought was access to care and being raised in a socioeconomic culture in which I could access care, I went 23 years suffering in pain without having diagnosis. And so once I was diagnosed, I felt that anybody who didn't have access to care, who didn't have the privilege that I had, it was time for me to use my voice to speak up for them. I had horrible bowel symptoms my whole life. I was the bloated person. I was, I have three different sets of every pair of pants and I always blamed myself because I thought I'm fat, I'm not eating right, I'm not working out, but my back hurt so badly and I was bloated all the time. It was not only the utero sacral endometriosis, but it was the bowel endometriosis that everybody under the sun told me I couldn't have and didn't exist. And I would say the majority of the people I come across did have bowel endometriosis. The other thing, that I um, significantly experienced was um, rib and diaphragm pain. And it's only in, I would say, the last maybe eight to 10 years that it's normalized that we believe that people can have diaphragmatic and lung endometriosis.
1: You mentioned a couple things that things um, that we should let our listeners know about, and, and if not aware of it, and that is that... Endometriosis, because of the variability of symptoms um, and because of the some of the concerns that you shared or some of your experiences that you shared, diagnosis is often made very late in the disease. So the average is 7 to 10 years. That's what's been reported, 7 to 10 years before a diagnosis is made. Because we know that the diagnostic tools are not wonderful. And that is part of the problem. So when we talk about the number of women who actually have this condition, it's conceivable that the population is much larger.
0: Right, well, one of the other things that we know that it's much larger because everybody is normalizing their cramps, um, that it's supposed to be normal to suffer And we know that there are people out there who aren't um, getting diagnosis or aren't even speaking up. If you have cramps, belly aches, back pain, um, stopping you from going to school, stopping you from achieving in your career because you can't go to work, there's a problem there whether the doctor agrees with you or not. So endometriosis is very hard. And one of the things that happens is there's no great diagnostic measure for endometriosis, like you said. A lot of people say, I went to the doctor and the doctor did an exam, no endometriosis. You can't necessarily feel endometriosis on the exam unless the person has a frozen pelvis. And not everybody needs a frozen pelvis to have endometriosis. The other issue is then somebody says, Oh, my doctor did an ultrasound. I'm all fine. The only thing ultrasound is going to measure is if you have an endometrioma, which is endometriosis in the in the ovary. Now, there is specialized research coming out in which we can design and use ultrasound to measure. But by and large, the doctors that you're gonna meet on the street corner they're not doing that yet. That's just coming out and people are just being trained. Then the other thing is people say, oh, I had an MRI. It didn't show anything. But endometriosis is an inflammatory disease of the peritoneum. You're not really going to see all of the disease unless it's what's called deeply invasive endometriosis or DIE or if it's overtaking your bowel, your lung, and it's really invasive, then you'll see it on MRI. You won't see superficial disease. And guess what? The word superficial means really nothing because you can have what doctors call superficial endometriosis, and it has no bearing on your pain or your quality of life because that's the fun of the enigmatic endometriosis that you could have deeply invasive endometriosis and have no pain, or you could have superficial endometriosis and not be able to function and work. So the gold standard in diagnosis happens to be surgery. Doctors also like to prescribe all sorts of things like medications that have huge side effects before they even have diagnosis. They wanna assume, well, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, must be a duck, except this particular duck, if you treat it that way and you don't have it, you're enduring side effects that are affecting you the rest of your life. And the other thing is the medications at best are going to give you symptomatic relief. They're not actually gonna attend to the lesion itself.
1: This is, this is information that our listeners need to appreciate because one of the things that we also have learned along the way, and, and as you know about Fempharma, the sponsor of this podcast uh, we've been working in endometriosis research for more than a decade sometimes the symptoms or the side effects associated with the therapy versus presumed therapy is worse than the condition itself if that's possible and you know we could talk about you know the overuse of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, even the ones that are over the counter and producing gastrointestinal side effects. And we can talk about some, uh, we could talk about the use of birth control pills, which may help in you know, in certain patients, but they really don't change the course of endometriosis, as you said. So, when, when you share these things with our listeners, it's, it's number one as a professional and number two from firsthand relevant experience, living with the condition. Uh, endometriosis is the leading cause of infertility in women. No surprise there, right? Um, if you're delaying that diagnosis and you have that tissue that has wrapped itself around your bowel and your bladder and outs- in your peritoneal cavity, so outside of the uterus, wrapping around all those tissues. It's going to impact your ability to have have a child. And again, that's not necessarily important for every woman, but for those for whom having a child is important, um, it is very disruptive. Very, It's a cause of depression and anxiety. And it's a couple's issue, obviously. So we'll get to that in a little while. But if you're having painful periods and long periods and periods with heavy bleeding and bowel and urinary problems, is pain during intercourse, if you're a sexually active woman, um, and it doesn't matter whether you're in a same-sex relationship or whether you are in a heterosexual relationship or whether you're self-pleasuring, if you're having pain where you're using a toy, then that's a signal potentially. Um, Obviously, infertility, and there there are lots of others, but those are sort of the key, um, one of the key symptoms of endometriosis that women should be watchful for. And although there may be women that are listening to this podcast who have who are in their fifties, think about your sister, your daughter, your friend. It's heartbreaking. I always say it destroys
0: all the when I grow ups. So we were hit by a storm um, just last week and we had to throw out my whole basement and all of the baby toys and all of the baby clothes went in the garbage and we stood on the curb and my um, father said, well, we were saving them waiting for the grandchildren to come over to play. And there is no grandchildren to come over to play because my endometriosis prevented me from having a child, but it goes to show you that I have endometriosis. That means my partner has endometriosis. And that means everybody around us, our parents and our families all have endometriosis too. And it's a it's a heartbreak for everyone, which is what makes endometriosis a social injustice because you're destroying lives by not treating the disease properly?
1: You raise a really important point. It is a generational issue. Um, It's a family issue, but it's a generational issue. We also know that there's a genetic predisposition. So I I mentioned early on that a number of my um, first-generation relatives um, have endometriosis. um, And as a consequence of that, um, several of them haven't been able to have children um, and then we're hysterectomized. And oftentimes women are taught that if you want to eliminate the endometriosis, the definitive cure, there is no cure, but the definitive resolution, let us say, is hysterectomy. Um, people who
0: don't have tubes, who don't have menstruation, who never menstruated, they have um, endometriosis. Endometriosis has been found in fetus, People who have never had hormones not helping, they still have endometriosis. And we do, I subscribe to the theory where endometriosis is laid down um, embryologically and then becomes hormonally reactive. Hysterectomy is really a waste for endometriosis. Because if you look at the definition of the disease, by nature of the definition, endometriosis is found outside of the uterus. So just taking that uterus is really going to do nothing for the lesion on your uterine sacral ligament, for the lesion on your rectum, for the lesion in your bowel, for the lesion in your lung. And it's not going to do anything for your symptoms except make you not have a period, but you're still going to have all of those chronic pain related issues, your pelvic floor dysfunction on top of that, your neurogenic inflammation on top of that. And it's an inflammatory soup that's really never going to be solved because all they did was take the uterus. And some people endometriosis, yes, infertility, but most of all, it creates an inability to live your life and an inability to have sex with your partner, to go to work, to sleep through the night, to play any recreational sports. It's horrendous. And people give in, the doctor says, people never question their doctor. Um, the doctor says, do this. And they do it because they feel like they have no choice. And in the end, it's probably going to cause them a bigger, a bigger problem, it's, especially if somebody's leaving the disease behind. And then you wanna talk about PTSD. And the endometriosis population, and medical gaslighting, and it—it's a—it's a whole soup. That's why something like this podcast is life changing for anyone who hears it. It's really beautiful the work you do.
1: Thank you. We uh, we appreciate the work that you do, and we also appreciate the the sharing of your personal story because there's there are going to be men and women listening to this podcast that can relate to what you have shared as to your personal experience we know there is no cure for endometriosis but we're solutions based so we want it we want to create hope and so that because we want to stop endometriosis pain take the next step 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 we we know that some of the recommended treatments include, and I'm not recommending anything, I am not a medical professional, it's not what we do on this podcast, but the current treatment options include the GNRH agonists, we will not mention them by brand name, birth control pills, which are often used at the very, what is presumed to be the early stages of endometriosis, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. These are over-the-counter products. Again, we won't name brand names, but you know what they are. And then something that's really important, and it's really an area of your expertise, which is pelvic physical therapy for endometriosis. Um, we do know that so there are some individual ways in which um, you can achieve symptom relief. We could talk about how how, how you you can help um, to alleviate some of the vulvar and vaginal dryness and pain during intercourse with non-hormonal products because hormones are not what you need at this point. So we want to try to take the the prescription side and put and park it for now, and we really want to focus on how you can intervene with. Diet, with exercise, with pelvic PT. So, I think for the remaining time that we have, we want to encourage women that there are some opportunities to make life changes that can be helpful. Again, not cures that can be helpful with each individual symptom. <laughs> we call that
0: symptomatic relief. That's the fancy word. But I wanted to say you know, you've mentioned NSAIDs twice, and I think. Um, you know, even as teens, you have some cramps, somebody hands you an end said, take a, take a, this, take a that. And, and I, I grew up that way. I mean, handfuls at two o'clock in the morning because my period had started and then the cramps would wake me up in the middle of the night and you wouldn't know what to do. And you couldn't ask the rest of the house. Cause I already always got yelled at because I bled so heavily. We had to change the sheets all the time. And I have to say, while we're, and I still have a problem from the NSAID use because I ended up with, um, damage to my gastrointestinal tract. And we're sitting here with the podcast. I can't even take a sip of water because if I aggravate um, that said, you know, related gastrointestinal part and burp while we're taping, this isn't just me. I think there are so many people that understand whether somebody is 70 or somebody is 15. Yeah. And um, that happens a lot. And so, you know, I think symptomatic relief yeah. is fantastic. So the pelvic floor is a grouping of muscles that lines the pelvis and slings from really in a hammock-like shape, right? We've all been somewhere and seen a hammock. And so it slings from your pubic bone around um, your rectum and over to your sacrum and then back to your pubic bone. And this sling-like grouping of muscles supports all the organs and it controls the opening and closing of what we call the pelvic outlet, the urethra, the rectum, and the vagina. And, but it also responds to anything that goes on in those organs, a, a viscerosomatic somatic response, somatic visit. It's, very, it's not a PT therapy school quiz on that. And so if you have disease or an inflammatory component, a lesion on those organs, you're gonna spasm all those muscles and you're gonna feel really bad and they're gonna get worse with your period even though those spasms are not from endometriosis they're gonna make it so it's difficult for you to pee. It's difficult for you to have a bowel movement. It makes you bloated. It makes you have IBS-like symptoms, back pain. Um, and of course, you know, it makes sex really painful if you have a pelvic floor dysfunction related issue or pelvic floor muscle tension. Because if something's in spasm and something's all tight, there's no way to get anything in it. And I'm so glad that you mentioned it's all kinds of sex because there is some muscle fiber twitching to orgasm. And that means even external um, and non-penetrative sexual activity can be painful. Sometimes the vibration on the toys can be painful, um, and sometimes uh, any kind of stimulation. So the um, clitoris is actually stimulated by another nerve, and if that nerve, we call the pudendal nerve. If the pudendal nerve is aggravated from the endometriosis inside, or from a tight piriformis or a ligament, you know, disalignment, then you're going to have pain when you use it, and you shouldn't have pain. Um, From any kind of clitoral stimulation. We should get over. I I tell it like it is because we should normalize. And you do that in the podcast. We should normalize talking about these things because if we were men, there would be no problem discussing this, but there's no shame in female pleasure. There's no shame in those who own a vagina um, talking about the parts as they are. And then, you know, the best part is you talked about Um, moisturizer. So if the nerves have been uh, upregulated from endometriosis, then they're not going to lubricate you the way that they should. And it becomes imperative to have really good vulvar health, which obviously you know about, right? And then my favorite is it's not always the pudendal nerve. It could be the nerves running through your groin. It could be position based. And so, um, physical therapy is something that helps with a lot of these things.
1: These are these are all really important points, and they're points that most of most of our listeners may may not have heard before unless they visited someone with your level of expertise in in physical pelvic therapy. This is not common knowledge. Um, It is knowledge by individuals such as yourself. And when we talk to women, we often hear that they are confused because they're not having vaginal insertive intercourse, but they're still experiencing pain and they don't really fully comprehend it this is for all people, it is for all people. And it, and more importantly, it is really a partner discussion. So if you're a same-sex couple listening in on this podcast, or if you're listening in and you have a same-sex partner, then perhaps you wanna share this podcast with your same-sex partner. If you're in a heterosexual relationship, you should share this with your male partner because this is your partner conversation. Let's explore that a little bit more because we we know that if your partner doesn't appreciate what you're going through, they may perceive that you lack interest, it's a libido issue, that it is um that there's something wrong with you. And there there is, but it's it has nothing to do with love or desire for intimacy. It's really that it's pain. You're suffering from pain. Right. So so we should talk about you know, how to have the conversation with your partner. Well, I
0: think one of the things that can be very important for the partner of the person with endometriosis is understanding that uh, sexual pleasure and intimacy are really two separate things. Um, and maintaining closeness in a relationship although the ease, you know, I always say the low-lying fruit. The low-lying fruit is to have intimacy through sex, but to have true intimacy um, means to be communicating and means to be connecting and it means to be touching in non-painful ways. And I like to say to partners that if, um, you know, every time they had sex, it was, you know, when a baby goes to like walk around the kitchen, and they touch the stove the first time and they recoil. Their central nervous system never lets them touch the stove again. They've learned in 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 um in, in people who are neurotypical. They never touch that stove again. And so if every time you go to have sex, it's painful. It's not that you don't want it. It's that your system has developed an entire neuropathic highway to having you avoid sex. And it's not about being a good partner and, or, um, a dutiful partner. It's about that you have a disease that is not, doesn't allow you to go through this as a painless experience. And it's not your lot in life to make sure the other person in the relationship feels pleasure. It's your lot in a relationship to have the two of you have intimacy. Sometimes that's a hug. Sometimes that's cooking dinner. Sometimes that's sending texts of any kind. Um, sometimes that's working out together. Sometimes that's Netflix and not chill. And it, it really goes back to communicating with your partner. Now, we talk about this from a tremendous source of privilege, because in certain cultures, it's believed it's the woman's job to provide that pleasure, and you and I, we need to do a better job um, accepting that there are people that are living that and educating in those communities that it's not your it's not your job um, to experience this trauma over and over and over again. And there are lots of cultures where if you don't give your your partner a child then you're like a horrible human being. And there are even, uh, you know, I'm, I'm um, Jewish and the Jewish faith is very based in um, family and child. And so, you know, not being single in that culture is what we call a shundra, which is like this, you know, curse nobody should speak about. But it really isn't. And we have to norm, podcasts like this, they normalize the conversation. That's you know what we're doing.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And we, we have to be intentionally diverse in our thinking. And the, the points that you raised about having an appreciation for cultural differences, ethnic differences, racial differences is super, super critical right now. And enlarging that conversation and being more sensitive and trying to find ways, pathways of communication to get the message out there is really key. When you um, counsel and work with the, um, your, your clients, do you bring their partners into the, the um, therapy?
0: Yes, so if the partner wants to attend therapy sessions, they are welcome to be there. Um, sometimes the person with endometriosis needs that space to be all for themselves. You know, it's great to be a physical therapist, um, because you get an hour with that patient at least once a week. Um, and most people in medicine don't get that time. So you get to really connect. And so sometimes the person with endometriosis, they want to ask you all sorts of questions that they can't ask or don't feel comfortable asking in front of the um, partner. And sometimes the partner needs to be there to, to hear what's going on and to hear the validation of what the presence of the disease is doing. And sometimes it's a matter of like brainstorming uh, medical or or medical tips for symptom relief with the couple because most couples do want to have sex and most couples get to the point with endometriosis where they may need some tips and so does that mean um bringing toys in that don't hurt does that mean using um, lubricants or a vulvar bar- balm in the morning, maybe, to make sure she's able to those the lubricate in the evening? Does that mean going through different positions that maybe won't compress the ilioinguinal nerve or won't cause difficulty to any uteral sacral endometriosis that hasn't been removed through excision? Because then they would have pain further back. So, what kind of position can they use? Where they're not further back? Do they have to bring in any kind of props? And and I find that most of the partners are um, thrilled to support because the physical therapist sometimes is the first part, first person that can discuss these things without judgment and that doesn't tell them this is all in their head.
1: And and that's that's really um, key, right? It's not in your head. We know that it's not in your head, um, and it's not for lack of the desire to love your partner. Your job, as it was, uh, it was shared communicated uh, with one of my other podcast guests. the job is to love your partner. That is your job, and love is pretty broad, right? Love, physical intimacy, obviously, that's one small part of it, but there are many other ways to love the person that you're with. Um, so. Very key to bring that person into the conversation. So, for same-sex partners who have um, someone they love who's suffering from endometriosis, or um, heterosexual couples, important to bring that partner into this conversation. The we also talk about um, other means by which to address endometriosis. And I know you um, you also have a background in uh, sports medicine and nutrition. Any any guidance that you can give, any uh, words of wisdom that you can share about how women should be thinking about the type of exercise that they're doing and the ways in which they are thinking about uh, their good nutrition, meditation, or other ways. I'll call it more integrative ways to think about how to deal with endometriosis pain.
0: Right. So um, you're not going to meditate away the lesion of endometriosis. And while I accept that, I also accept that the central nervous system plays a role in driving your pain. And one of the best handles to get into the central nervous system, to tell it to be quiet and to allow you to regroup is breathing. And um, we always give our are, are people a breathing program, but also meditation is a great way to do that breathing and to do the handle? And I've taken all sorts of meditation courses. And honestly, when you look at the research, it takes three to five minutes a day in terms of meditation. And it doesn't have to be in a special, you know, meditation room, whatever. The idea is to um, be where you're going to follow through with the three to five minutes, whether that's in bed or a chair, or you know, outside and set a timer and then that's it. And I feel like to have that little small snack of meditation is maybe something people follow through on um, to have quiet breathing for that three to five minutes is really as effective as if you had half an hour, which you're never going to do in today's busy life in terms of the nutrition at its core we believe that endometriosis is an inflammatory disease and so there's a lot of talk about anti-inflammatory diets with endometriosis and we used to talk about something called the endo diet the endo diet isn't really a proven thing but we do know that there are some people who respond Um, to anti-inflammatory diets. So what are inflammatory foods? White flour, sugar is really, all the good stuff is inflammatory. I mean, all the yummy stuff. Um, Sugar is super inflammatory. Uh, People say coffee is, we're not going to talk about that one. Um, Right. But red meat is super inflammatory um, and all of your processed food. But here's like the thing we shouldn't really be eating processed food in the first place. We shouldn't really be um, like sucking down nitrate based cold cuts in the first place. So eating foods that are anti-inflammatory, they're going to help your overall health. And then it comes down to, there are people who are helped by diet and there are people who are not helped by diet Some do really well with um, eliminating foods and we, we don't give strict elimination diets anymore. We like to talk about what foods you can eat because body image and eating disorders run rampant in any population that's all about patient blaming through diet, which endometriosis has been for a little while. That's its own podcast, but- Um, And so it's not about saying I can't have a cookie. It's about saying I can have um, this almond flour based treat, you know, and and many people tolerate eggs, many people tolerate gluten, many people tolerate dairy. And many people do not. So guess which one I am who had to host a dinner last night with no eggs. I used the applesauce and all the baked goods, no <laughs> gluten, right? No, you know, so like you get used to it after a while, but what's sad is I think people try that for so many years, I'll go gluten-free to fix my pain and maybe it gives them symptomatic relief. But like you said, in the beginning, they're not getting diagnosis. And, and so they're not getting to the root of their problem. Then their digestive tracts are probably so damaged. Once they do have the disease removed, they can't go back to eating the gluten. So it becomes really hard. So I, for a very long time, was on the train of, you know, if you have pelvic pain, you have to do yoga, walking, or swimming. And then I took Anthony Lowe's course, and he's a huge pelvic PT exercise uh, and he has a whole institute and everything. And, and guess what? There's no research that proves you have to do yoga, walking, or swimming. And if you don't want to yoga, walk, or swim, you're not going to maintain an exercise program. And maintaining an exercise program is good not only for cardiovascular health, for bone health, because some of those drugs you've probably been prescribed are bad for your bones, Um, but also for mental health, for brain health. So it really is thought of now that the exercise you love the most, that's the one that you should do. Now it changes a little bit when you are uh, menopausal or without hormones because you do need that bone development, but the one you're gonna stick with, that's it. And my job as a pelvic PT is to make sure physically You can do that. Do I love to work with the CrossFitters? Not really, but I do show them how to adapt to be able to do what they love to get, because that's where you're going to get social stimulation. That's where you're going to feel good about yourself. I had a client this morning on Zoom and she wanted to lift weights. And so she's very close out of surgery. We didn't feel comfortable with her lifting eight pounds. But I got on that Zoom with her and we showed her all the good things to do with three pounds and how to adapt to get what she loves in without aggravating her pain. And, and that's the name of the game with exercise. You know, I'm a tennis and nine surgeries did not do good for my tennis, but I made sure I worked with someone to make sure I could, you know, I actually won a national championship at one point. But That I could stay on the court and that if that's what makes you happy, you've been robbed of so much else. we got to find what makes you happy and it's our job to adapt to it, not your job to give up more.
1: So you just hit on the theme for love Mia Vita because it's about loving your life. Mia Vita, it's about loving your life. If you don't love it, you don't do it. You should everything needs to be done in so at some level of moderation. So if you love that sweet, maybe you don't eat ten chocolate chip cookies. Maybe you cut it back to one or maybe two. But good, it really good uh, recommendations from someone that has, I'll say, lived the dream in quotes, right? Um, but look at you I, the the listeners can't see your beautiful face you're vibrant um, you're well accomplished you are very sensitive and yes you've had a 23 you had a 23 year journey um, that is um, you know remarkable and you're still speaking about endometriosis and you're on a mission to change all that which is part of the, the desire to stop endometriosis pain to try to find new solutions and you, um, you founded the Endometriosis Summit, the Endo Summit, and I want to have some time to uh, have you speak about the Endo Summit, what you've done, what, what is uh, available to women who have additional questions on endometriosis. The
0: Endometriosis Summit is uniting patients and practitioners to change the narrative in endometriosis. So basically it's like this big podcast for three days um, because we believe that all voices matter. Um, We believe that um, the surgeons, physical therapists and practitioners need to join together with the patient voices. And the endometriosis summit is the brainchild of myself but also of Dr. Andrea Vidali. And he and I were once standing in the OR. It was a patient who had had nine miscarriages and nobody bothered to take the endometriosis out. And I was standing there because she also had horrible pelvic pain and had quit her job. And I said, let's see if you have this endometriosis. And he looked up and he said, we will gather people in a little conference room and we'll start talking together because it's time for all of us to talk. Well, the little conference room sold out in three days and within two weeks we had to rent a hotel for 330 people. That was the first year. The second year, we were um, close to 700 right before COVID set down. And last year, we were virtual, and we were 1,200 over the course of three days. Now, we're training doctors so that doctors understand good care and endometriosis. We have an EndoSummit fellow, so we have our own fellow to train them in surgery and in pelvic pain. We have something called EndoSummit Workshop, which I hope everybody will attend, where we talk about the journey with endometriosis. So sometimes we talk about acceptance, sometimes we talk about the language you use to yourself. Um, we t- we had an artist draw what all are how we all felt about endometriosis and and works out as my favorite part because very like touchy-feely, you know, connect to the person. And then we have the town meeting and it's open mic, and it's very interesting to hear what patients have to say and to share in their journeys. And uh, one of the things that struck me uh, and our hope is that we get the attention of the powers that be so that research is not biased towards one particular treatment and that research is actually uh unbiased and it's biased towards finding help and finding a cure not only towards researchers that want to support the people that are funding them and we begin to change policy that can actually help people with endometriosis but one of the things i was most shocked with in the second endo summit when we passed out the mics the anger in the crowd was palpable and We did our our best to move through it and to handle it. But if we as practitioners and people with endometriosis don't start to change the narrative in the disease for everybody that's out there, it's going to be a horrible future for those ahead with endometriosis because what's happening is the trauma and the anger is just seeping out of them and we have to get these people help.
1: What what you've shared about the anger and the frustration with endometriosis should be the anger and frustration with what's happening in women's health in general, because although we make 85% of the decisions um, in healthcare related issues for ourselves and our families, we are often second class citizens when it comes to our health and companies will often decide to switch up their strategic focus so that women's health care is not an area of strategic focus and it is a particular bone of contention for me and it was the reason that i started fem pharma two decades ago uh, first uh, focusing on prescription and then also uh, deciding to add a non-prescription arm uh, a separate company with fem pharma consumer Healthcare. so I've been screaming from the rooftops for changes in women's healthcare for a long time, and I need a lot of women to join me. So thank you for joining me, to sc- screaming from the rooftop. Thank you for doing the Endo Summit. More to come. You and I will continue to have these conversations. We'll s- send you some dates. Uh, we'll post them up on the Fem Pharma Consumer Healthcare website. They will obviously be on Dr. Sally's website, Dr. Sally Saro, and we hope that you will join us. And if you're not affected by endometriosis personally, I can pretty much guarantee that you have a mother, a sister, a daughter, or a friend that has been impacted in some way. And men, don't forget to pay attention. Uh, to your partner, uh, listen in. And Sally, I want to thank you once again for joining me on the love Mia Vita podcast, love your life. We loved having you today. Thank oh, you. I loved That's being
0: here. I just loved it. If anybody wants to learn more, it's, um, endometriosis because the Sally Sorrell.com doesn't work so well anymore. Um, but, and, um, If you're out there, don't suffer alone. Find someone that can help you. That's what's great about the podcast. I'm so happy you reached out.